Jesus uh, just uh, finished giving us this picture of disciples giving themselves completely to God uh, when he highlighted this, this poor widow who gave uh, her two copper coins all that she had. Uh, that was a picture for his disciples. And now um, he's going to prepare us for what's coming so that you and I will be one who, um, he says, verse 13, endures to the end. That's the point here. Okay? So the point is not to satisfy all of your curiosity. It's a call to action. Here's how to be a disciple knowing that the end is coming. And I'm telling you, if you don't keep that purpose in mind, you're probably going to get a little frustrated uh, this morning. You may feel a little confused, feel like you're getting more questions than you are answers. And, and, and while there are some things that you need to know, you don't really need to understand all the details of what's coming because Jesus' desire for you is not to be right in your predictions, but to be ready in the present for what's coming. So that's kind of our big idea of the text. If you're taking notes, just note this. Jesus wants us to be ready now for what's coming in the future. You got that? It's going to be really important that we keep discipleship in mind as we read this. We're going to attempt to cover the entire chapter this morning. We'll see how that works out. So, starting in verse 1, follow along with me. We've got a lot to read here. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. For when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation 
as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Hope you sense that there's some uh, discipleship going on. I know that you read some of that and you're like, what in the world is happening here? Uh, but, but really, Jesus is going to give us two exhortations to be ready. So if you're taking notes, here's one. Note this. Be on guard because it's going to get rough. I hope that's pretty clear what he's trying to say to us this morning. And and I know that that uh, doesn't sound real pleasant, but I do think that there's some encouragement for us here. Be on guard. It's going to get rough. So, so Jesus, in the last couple of chapters, remember, he's been coming in and out of the temple. He's been spending the night on, uh, on the Mount of Olives and then going back in the temple. And what did he do when he got there? He got to the temple and he just cleaned house, right? I mean, he, he condemned it because the temple was failing to be what God designed it to be, which was a, a house of prayer for all the nations. And so Jesus, as he's walking out, verse 1, the disciples are kind of in awe of this architectural magnificence of this building, which it was. I mean, it was something to see, okay? This is not Solomon's temple. Remember that? That temple had gotten destroyed, but it got rebuilt, and now King Herod has been refurbishing that temple. In fact, by the time that Jesus is on the scene, uh, this temple has been under construction for about 50 years. And, and this whole thing, the, the, the whole complex kind of spans about 35 acres. I mean, it was something to see. And so, so, so these disciples are just kind of in awe of how big and how beautiful it is. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity to say, listen, listen, I, I know it's incredible, but it's all coming down. He says, verse 2, there will not be left here one stone that will not be thrown down. So I got a chance to uh, see this while I was there in Jerusalem. And, and here are some of the stones that are still there. Um, destroyed. The temple was completely wiped out. This happened, this is going to be important for you to know. This happened in the year A.D. 70. In the year A.D. 70, the Romans finally came in and completely destroyed the temple. Now, there are still some songs that are left there to this day. In fact, um, you know them. Uh, you, you've probably seen uh, this picture. This is uh, the Western Wall. And, and at the Western Wall, kind of the lower half, these stones down here, and even uh, about 17 uh, feet below street level there, uh, those are from the time of Herod. And this is where the Jews gathered together to this day. Uh, this is pretty much the closest place that they can get to where the temple would have been. And we know this not just as the Western Wall, but as the Wailing Wall, because this is where they gather to uh, weep and pray and remember the destruction of their temple. It's going to be important for you to remember that, that this temple was torn down in A.D. 70, and then verse 3 says that Jesus went out and sat down on the Mount of Olives 
opposite the temple. And I've got a, a picture of me standing right here on the Mount of Olives, and you can look right down into Jerusalem, and, and this is where this is happening, right here where Peter and James and John and Andrew are sitting on the Mount of Olives looking down. You can see Temple Mount, the western wall would have been on the other side. Those steps on the left, those are the steps that Jesus would have walked up. Now this has been rebuilt, but this is essentially what they would have been looking down on as the disciples are, are, are looking down at the temple. They're thinking about what Jesus just said about it, that it's going to be destroyed. And so because of that, they ask, verse 4, when? When's, when's this going to happen? What's, what's going to be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? Because in their minds, the destruction of the temple and the end times were connected. And so they want to know, when's that happening? And I want you to notice as we, as we dive into this, that Jesus never actually answers that specific question. I mean, he does uh, tell us what's coming. He says that there's going to be false, mus- false messiahs, uh, there's going to be rumors of wars, there's going to be wars, but the end is not yet. There's, there's, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines, but these, these are but the beginning. He doesn't give us a date and time in the future because he's more concerned with how we live now. And so he actually gives us a bunch of commands in here. If you're looking at it, you see commands in verse 5. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 7, do not be alarmed. Verse 9, but be on your guard. See, the reason he's given all these commands is because this is more about discipleship. He cares more about discipleship than satisfying your curiosity. So he's saying, guys, be on your guard because it's going to get rough. I mean, the world is going to be a mess. People are going to be deceived. There's going to be the horrors of war, destruction, catastro- catastrophic devastation. I mean, it is going to be awful. But, but, it's not all uh, gloom and doom. I-, I love that he actually gives us a-, a little glimmer of hope. I don't know if you saw this, but look at verse 8. I love this. In-, in the midst of all of this, guys, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be horrible. But at the end of verse 8, he gives us this little imagery that gives us a glimpse of hope. Right here, at the end of verse 8, he says, these are but the beginning." Of the birth pains. Now that's some imagery right there. Now, four kids later, I can tell you that I still have no clue about the birth pains, all right? Just want to confess that, want to make sure that we're really clear. I'm not saying I understand what it's like, I do not uh, uh, know how that feels, but I do know what comes after the pain. I was thinking about my little guy. Javen, who turns uh, two years old this week on Friday. And um, honestly, I, I was thinking about what happened uh, two years ago. Two years ago right now, uh, my wife and I were sitting right there. We were standing right there um, worshiping together in tears, um, just praying that we could trust the Lord through what was going on. Because right at the last minute, um, the doctors told us that there were some potentially life-threatening complications that we were facing uh, to the point where we had to, like, switch doctors. We had to switch hospitals. It was a little crazy. And then even the morning of, um, the doctors had to come in and start warning us about what might happen and what, could, you know, what, what, what they might have to do and all of that. I'm telling you, I was freaked out. 
I freaked out that I was going to lose my wife, that I was going to lose our baby. And so this week, as I was looking through pictures like this, I just can't even tell you, like, what that does in my heart. And I remember I had a, a couple minutes after Javen was born, and Carissa was okay, and they kind of let me go over into this. I don't even know where I was in the hospital, but I got a room all to myself with my son for a few minutes, and I just get to sit there and weep. And the sense of, of relief and joy that came. I love that Jesus gives us that imagery. Because what he's trying to say is, guys, it's going to get bad, okay? It's gonna, in fact, it's going to get worse. I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want you, I don't want you to be fooled into thinking otherwise. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. But there is hope that just as a mother endures the pain of childbirth and then somehow that vanishes in joyful relief in the end, so it will be for us. And I think before we go any further, we're, we're going to look at some things that are, that are hard and, and, and maybe scary and, and, and painful, and it's going to get worse, but we got to get this down first, that our days may grow dark, but in the end, we have joy that only the good news of Jesus can give us hope that would sustain us through the midst of what's coming, knowing that we have joy waiting for us i got to be honest with you. I love the fact that the Bible um, is real, uh, and, and it's raw. It deals with reality the way it is. It doesn't gloss over it and pretend like this, you know, this world's, it's, everything's just happy and, 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 and there's no problem. No, the Bible allows us to look right into a world that is filled with evil and pain and face it head on with the hope that this is not the final word, that in the end, there is joy that's coming. And we're going to need that because we're going to face persecution, he says. Verse 13, he says, you will be hated by all. I mean, why would you not anticipate uh, facing opposition in a world that hates Jesus, right? So he says, verse 9, here's, here's the command, be on your guard. For they're going to deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You're going to stand before governors and kings. You, you think at that point that maybe the disciples had a few questions? Like, like hey Jesus, we've got a few follow-up questions. Like, what are you talking about, man? Like, who, when, when, when where is that going to happen? Like, but what's Jesus' point? It's not to satisfy all their curiosity and answer all of those questions. He's trying to say to them, hey, guys, it's coming, and I want you to be ready. And I think we need to be ready for this as a church too. But I love that Jesus actually tells us that persecution is it's actually an opportunity for the gospel. Look, when you're, when you're standing before governors and kings, the reason you're there is to bear witness before them because the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And we actually see that being played out in the book of Acts. It's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. They're going to come after you, and you're going to stand before kings, and you're going to bear witness. And nowhere do I think we see this more pronounced than the end of the book of Acts. We see Paul standing before King Agrippa. I got to stand in the place 
in, in Caesarea, where he was, right here in the Hippodrome, in, in, where, where they would have the Roman games. And it was here that Paul stood on trial before King Agrippa, and, and, and he saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel, and he starts telling his testimony of what Jesus has done in his life to the point where King Agrippa is like, Paul, do you think you're going to convince me in such a short time? He says, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel. So we see it being played out in the book of Acts, but we also see it being played out in church history. Because here in, in Caesarea, just a couple hundred years later, there was a man named Eusebius in the 4th century, was a, a historian. He became an eyewitness to the persecution and the martyrs that happened at that very spot. And he said the Christians there became food for wild beasts. They were beheaded. Some were hoisted naked and lashed and Salt and vinegar poured over their lacerations where the bones protruded and then burned. Even women and children were killed. They stood there for the name of Christ. What, what a challenge to us to live sent. We have a mission. Jesus says, verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And there's some incredibly dark and difficult places, unreached nations, people that have never heard the gospel, people that are antagonistic towards it, do not want to hear the name of Christ. And I was thinking about this week, the fact that God may give some of you a really unique platform for the gospel. That we've just become committed to this being a church that's going to send you out. And I don't know where God's going to send you. And some of you have careers and opportunities that would afford you to go to places and open doors that the rest of us would never be able to reach. And God may have you stand before someone to proclaim his name. And it may come at a cost. So I think we need some encouragement. I think there are two things that Jesus tells us right here that might be encouragement. Here's one, verse 11. When you're facing that, he said, don't, don't be anxious about what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. See, I don't know what it's going to look like here in Fairfax or beyond or wherever it is that God sends you. But I do know that no, I know no matter how rough it gets, when the opportunity is there, you are not alone. We're not sending you out by yourself. And God is with you. And you can have the confidence that he is going to give you what needs to be said so that you can be a bold witness and make a stand for Christ. Isn't that awesome to have that kind of confidence? That God is with us. There's another encouragement. He said that, that verse 13, if, even if you are 
hated by all for Christ, the one who endures to the end will be saved. What he's saying is hang in there. Don't, don't give in. Don't, don't give up hope. Endurance has a limit. The need for endurance has a time limit. What he's trying to say to us is darkness is not going to last forever. The morning is coming. The sun is going to shine again. And the end is not the end for those of us who are in Christ. And we need to endure for just a little while. But remember the hope of what's coming, right? So he tells us, be on guard because it's going to get rough. And it's going to get worse still. This next section, verses 14 to 23, I'm going to be honest with you, this is some of the most uh, cryptic, kind of confusing uh, section in the book of Mark to try to interpret and understand. But I want you to keep in mind Jesus' purpose in telling us this, okay? Keep that in mind as we look at verse 14. He says, when you see, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. So the abomination of desolation was a, a, a reference to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12, Daniel prophesied. He, he, he prophesied of this abomination of desolation, that, that something scandalous was going to happen in the temple and leave it desolate. Now, sometimes one prophecy can actually be fulfilled in, in multiple events. You can kind of have a, a partial and ultimate uh, fulfillment of a prophecy. And I think that's what happens here. Because I think this prophecy from Daniel of the abomination of desolation was partially fulfilled in the year 186 B.C. Okay? 186 B.C. means it's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In those years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he marched into Jerusalem, and he uh, committed this abominable act here on the altar. He sacrificed a pig on the altar and then built an altar to Zeus in the temple. Now, the Jews were kind of ticked off about this, understandably, and so that led to a little bit of a revolt, and uh, that revolt was led by the Maccabees. If any of you have ever read or heard the story of Hanukkah, that's where the story of Hanukkah comes from, is this event that happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that was a partial fulfillment of this, uh, this prophecy from Daniel chapter 9 through 12. But I do think... There could also be a partial fulfillment in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, which is going to happen in just a few years. This is the context of the conversation that, that Jesus is talking about. This thing is it's coming down. But even if it is um, also partially fulfilled there, it still foreshadows another future event, which will be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. And that is when the Antichrist comes. Now this like weirds you out. Some people get all uh, excited about trying to figure these things out. But the Antichrist, if, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot down 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we read about this man of lawlessness, uh, the man of lawlessness, this Antichrist. Uh, verse 4, uh, Paul tells us that he's the one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship and takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That is the ultimate fulfillment of this scandalous prophecy of the abomination of desolation. And Jesus is saying when that happens at that time um, in the future, verse 19, there is going to be incredible tribulation. And it seems likely that that might be a seven-year time that he's referring to, but Jesus doesn't really go into all the details right here. you got to remember, the point is discipleship. The point is not that we would start trying to crack the code and, and, and decipher all the details of, like, who that's going to be and when it's going to happen and, and what's it going to look like and try to sketch out a timeline. Or... The point of Jesus telling us this is not to freak us out and so that we'll be worried and, and anxious about what's coming and, and, and we'll be afraid. Listen, listen, look at what he says, verse 20. He says, for the sake of the elect, the elect, God shortened the days. Man, that's a promise that even in the midst of these awful days, the darkest days the world will ever, ever see, God is still sovereign. He's still in control. The Antichrist won't win. And he shortens the Days because he's a, a gracious God, which really means for us that we have no need to fear in any of this. But there is a warning, verse 22. Jesus tells us that, that false Christs will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. See, the, the real danger for us is not that we would die. In the end, that's not really that big of a deal. The real danger is that we would be deceived. And so he says... Be on guard. And I've told you all these things beforehand. See, Jesus wants us to be ready now for what's coming in the future. And he's trying to tell us it's going to get rough, so pay attention. I don't want you to be led astray. Which is why I think it's so important for us right now to be developing our relationship with God. That we'd be spending time with him in his word that we'd be spending time on our knees. We want to know him. Man, it's good for us to know what's coming. It's better for us to know Christ and to follow hard after him. He wants us to be ready. But it does get better. So let's, let's, let's read on. It'll, it'll get a little bit more exciting here. Verse 24, he says, But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and he find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So I hope you can appreciate how difficult it was for me to decide, like, how much of this do we want to cover all in one? Do we want to, like, do the whole thing in one week? But I didn't want us to lose the forest for the trees, get bogged down in the details that we miss the point of what Jesus is really trying to say to us. So here's the second exhortation if you're taking notes. Stay awake because Jesus is coming again soon. That's some awesome news. Verse 24, he says, but in those days, after that tribulation, yes, some terrible things are coming, but that's not the end of the story. The sun's going to be dark and the moon stops giving its light. The, the stars are falling. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. He gives us this pic, picture of these, this cosmic chaos and, and darkness, but it's, but it's not a picture of, of doom and gloom because look at verse 26. I love this. Then, then. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Man, I'm not sure that we really understand and appreciate just how exciting and glorious that promise is. Jesus is coming back. That's awesome. I remember, I remember when I was a kid. I don't know if you ever experienced this, but I remember when I was a kid, I wasn't really ready for Jesus to come back yet. There were some things that I wanted to happen first. And, and for me, it was kind of stupid things like I, you know, I wanted him to wait until after I got a chance to go on that trip to an amusement park or something really silly like that. Maybe, maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you thought, like, I really want Jesus to come back, but, but I kind of want to get married first. I want to have, like, some kids. I want to I go to Disney World. I want to see my favorite sports team win a championship. Those are, those are good things. We kind of bruised those. We don't really get it, right? There ought to be a longing in our hearts for his return. That when we consider the, the, the brokenness of this sin-cursed world and how a mess it is, when he comes back, he is going to set all things right. And the reason he can do that is because the first time that he came, he came for our redemption. We saw this in the, the most important verse in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So the first time when Jesus came in as a baby, he came in humility as a servant, Mark says, to die at the hands of the Jews who hated him and the Roman Gentiles who mocked him and hung him on a cross. But that wasn't the end. He arose from the dead, and now we have this promise that he is going to come again, and this time he's coming in power 
and in glory. And this promise, verse 27, is that he's going he's to gather his elect to be with him. He is going to gather his people. Those of us who are in Christ, we are going to be gathered together to live with him for all of eternity in his presence. In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know that any of us can appreciate just how exciting it is going to be for us to live with him and finally be done away with pain and suffering, and the tears will be no more, and we will be in his presence forever. You look forward to that? So, so he, he tells us there's a, there's a lesson, verse 28. Uh, learn from the fig tree. I, I could just imagine Jesus is sitting here. Remember, he's looking down. They're looking down at the temple. And Peter and James and John and Andrew are sitting there with him. Maybe there's a fig tree right over here. He says, God, look over there. It's like that. When you see the leaves, you know that summer is near. See, the leaves are a sign, not, not that summer has started, but that it's coming soon. It's similar to what we see, the signs of spring that show up when the trees start to bloom and we start to see the signs that summer is coming. How many of y'all are ready for summer already? Yes? So, so, so a week like this makes us kind of appreciate how, uh, how exciting and the anticipation that would be building for that moment. So he says, so also, when you see these things, know that he is near. He's at the very gates. Now, these things there that Jesus says he's referring to, uh, probably referring to the destruction of the temple, which he uh, had prophesied. Remember back in verse 2, that's what this whole conversation started with. That, that thing's coming down. And when you see that, that's going to be a reminder. That's a wake-up call. Jesus is coming again soon. And then he gives us this really interesting and difficult verse for us, verse 30. He says, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, at first glance, uh, that kind of looks bad on Christianity, doesn't it? Like all of these disciples are dead, and Jesus still hasn't come back yet. So did, did he get it wrong? Well, obviously, Jesus was not referring to those specific disciples. But I do think there are maybe two options for us here. One, he could be referring, this generation could be the generation that's going to still be alive at the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Not, gonna, not too many years after this. Or it's possible that it, it could also be the generation who will be alive at the end times, at the time of the Antichrist and the return of Jesus. They'll see all of those things together. The point is this. What he's saying is it will happen. My words will not pass away. You can count on it. We don't know when, but we do know that it will happen. And again, just remember, he doesn't give us a date and time, but he does give us some, some urgency. This could happen soon. God wants us to be living with this anticipation. And so he says, verse 32, concerning that day, that hour, nobody knows, not even the Son. Only the Father knows that. Even Jesus, who willingly became a man, kind of accepted the limits of his humanity and his living independence on the Father. It's an example for us. So he says, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. God intends for us to live not knowing exactly when it's going to happen. 
Because not knowing actually impacts how we live now, doesn't it? And think about it. If I told you, um, you only have six months to live, or maybe you've got a month, a month left to live, what would you do immediately? You might change some things, right? You, you, you might go back and, and, and kind of uh, think and evaluate you, your priorities and, and, and get after some things with some greater urgency, like can't waste time. I don't have much time left. See, I think that's what Jesus is wanting here, that we would be looking to the future with hope and excitement, but he intentionally doesn't tell us when these things are really going to happen, just the promise that they will happen, and they're going to happen soon so that we will live ready now. Just to reiterate that, he tells us this, this parable about a master of a house goes away and gives his servants some work to do, especially the doorkeeper. He tells the doorkeeper, stay awake. Really don't want the master of the house to show up all of a sudden and find you asleep. So I think what Jesus is saying is stay awake. He's coming soon, and he wants us to be ready. I wonder, what does it look like for you to stay awake and to be waiting for his return? There needs to be an anticipation. This could happen soon. Well, he's given us some work to do, didn't he? He sent you here on mission. So you know what it looks like? It's what we've been talking about all year. Live sent. I think about some of you, I uh, had some conversation with some of you who thought about that this week, even with Thanksgiving. You realized this was an opportunity for you to seize the moment and invite some people over even people that don't know Christ, and to share with them the love of Christ. And those of you who are anticipating and getting excited about the Christmas season and the opportunities that will be there, maybe it's a relationship that you need to develop. Maybe it's somebody in the body of Christ that you need to serve and put their needs before your own. Maybe it's an open door for the gospel, a conversation that you need to have. What he's trying to tell us through this whole thing, guys, I know it's going to get bad, but we have hope that in the end there is joy because he's coming back and he's coming back soon. And we want to be a church that's ready to be getting after the work that he put us here to do. Amen? Father, we look forward to the day when you send your son finally for the second time. And some of us feel that more than others. Maybe some of us um, are under the illusion that there's some other things that we would prefer to happen first. Lord, would you just show us that there really is nothing that would even compare to the joy of being with you in your presence. So maybe you need to teach us again that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that we would have our hearts turned to you and and longing for you. Lord, we look forward to that day, but it also gives us a sense of urgency that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. There are conversations that need to be had. There are neighbors and coworkers that we need to connect with and 
you have sent us here. You sent us here on mission. So I pray that we would be a church that is ready. We're ready now for what's coming. And Lord, I pray that you would just get us excited. These are incredible promises that we're holding on to. And so I pray that you would get the glory in it as your church is made ready and excited for you to come again. And it's in Jesus' awesome name that we pray. Amen.